Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco Radio. This week, we delve into the history of the notebook. There is definitely a kind of note which is much better made on paper. Plus, the return of David Cameron. To a chorus of astonished gasps and or delirious laughter, Sunak summoned David Cameron. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Gaza. As concerns grows over Gaza's biggest hospital, we heard this week from Matthew Morris of the International Committee of the Red Cross about the organization's humanitarian response in the region. It's a dire situation there. It's the main hospital in Gaza. But also the situation is desperate in other medical facilities as well. I think the reports that you're hearing, we're, we're also hearing and seeing the images and video. It's very, very distressing. Colleagues, a few days ago, we did manage to get to Al-Shifa Hospital um, with a convoy of medical items. Actually, that had come under fire. So actually, one of the trucks we had to leave behind. But we managed to get four trucks of supplies there. And, and staff, colleagues told me of seeing thousands of um, internally displaced people who were staying at the hospital. And then in terms of the medical situation, uh, staff having to make very, very difficult decisions, um, not able to treat everybody in the way that they would like, of course, power going down, communications going down, not having the right medical supplies. So it really, really difficult situation. And is it viable for Israel to be able to support and evacuate these patients and staff while simultaneously wanting to take action against this alleged command centre underneath? Well, part of our role is to remind all parties in all conflicts of their legal obligations uh, under international humanitarian law, IHL, often known as the war, uh, laws of war. And we are constantly reminding both parties of, the, of their obligations. And there is a lot of discussion around evacuations, around sending supplies in. Now, that's something we are trying to send as many supplies in as we can, but it's incredibly difficult. And that example that I gave you was, was one where the ICRC, we had the security guarantees that we seek every time we uh, send a convoy of supplies. We don't do these things quietly or silently we do it in full transparency we secure get the security guarantees that we need and then our staff move and that uh, convoy came under uh, fire so that gives you an example of how how difficult it is so an evacuation of a hospital that's really complicated and difficult i think if we just stop for a minute and try and imagine perhaps somewhere closer to home in manchester london cardiff if somebody said let's evacuate a hospital with critically ill patients an icu unit um premature babies that all of those things and many, many other uh, types of patients, we would immediately realize how complex that could be, let alone when you then transfer that concept to a, an active conflict zone. So very, very complex. It's something that uh, I know our colleagues are in touch with um, the parties about. And, and we do stand ready to play our neutral intermediary role and try and facilitate where we can. But, but something like that, very, very complex. What's the situation for the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who have fled to the south of the Gaza Strip? Difficult. Uh, again, my colleagues have, have talked to me in recent days. They've described uh, trying to take vehicles across the along the main road and 
scores and scores of people trying to flee to find somewhere safe, sleeping out in the open, sleeping uh, uh, under trees. Uh, communications is often going down, which means when people are, are hurt or need help, they can't phone for an ambulance. Um, but it also means they get separated and they can't contact their lo loved ones. And then when those, those communications stay down, uh, people get separated, families get separated. And we know that there are uh, children who are separated from parents and things like that. And I think that what we need is to, to have the safe and sustained access that humanitarian organizations need. Again, there's much talk about a pause or pauses, but really something that we need is going to have to be very radically different to what the situation is right now. We do need series of pauses. We do need humanitarian aid organizations to be allowed to operate safely, to take staff and supplies in, but also people who fled their homes. Again, IHL, the laws of war, they require that the parties make sure that they provide for these people. So people need food, they need water, they need shelter, all sorts of other things. Um, so uh, we do need some kind of radical solution. And how many trucks a day are now getting over the Egyptian border? And what is the distribution effort like? You mentioned the challenges of not having communications. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard other agencies talking about some, something like 50 trucks a day. I mean, we've had some dozens of trucks, which is quite clearly nowhere and near enough and we've been able to facilitate some medical evacuation so accompanying the ambulances to take some patients out and also being able to accompany some uh, uh, displaced people uh, to leave as well but again we were hearing before the crisis um, to keep Gaza going there were something like more than 500 trucks per day so the situation now is nowhere near what it needs to be. And again, we have the, the, the complication of, of, of trucks uh, that need to move within the Gaza Strip, not being able to because of the, the, the shortage of fuel. So the difficulties are, are mounting up day by day. It's a very complex crisis, but it's also a simple point to make that we need sustained safety access for, for humanitarians and we need some real solutions we need some kind of agreement uh, to provide respite and provide the support that people need in the north in the middle in the south of gaza and like a previously believed to be dead character in a soap opera former uk prime minister david cameron's episode ending review on downing street caused an audible gasp followed by questions of how what where when and why Andrew Muller explains. If any departure from politics ever looked terminal, it was the one David Cameron made in 2016. The British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. In a little over a year, he had gone from winning himself a second term as Prime Minister and the Conservatives, their first parliamentary majority in a quarter of a century, to resigning in ignominy after the commission of an unforced error without equal in British political history. In a bid to shut up the headbanger wing of his own party, he had, instead of just saying, you know, shut up, headbanger wing of my own party, bet the country on a referendum and lost. But as you may well have read, David Cameron 
is back. On Monday, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak reshuffled his cabinet or arguably rearranged his deck chairs. He ditched turbulent Home Secretary Suella Braverman and replaced her with broadly sensible Foreign Secretary James Cleverley, thus creating a vacancy at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. To a chorus of astonished gasps and or delirious laughter, Sunak summoned... David David Cameron! Cameron? What? I was not expecting that! Okay. Before we get to the why, or perhaps more accurately, the why, we should look at the how. One likely point of bafflement that must be addressed is how Cameron could even be considered for the position when he has not been for some while a Member of Parliament, having preferred to scarper with unseemly haste rather than stick around to clean up the mess he had conjured. It is often forgotten that a British Prime Minister can actually appoint more or less whoever they like to their cabinet. It is merely convention that ministers, at least the very senior and publicly visible ministers, are also MPs. The Ministerial Code does insist that ministers should be members of the Commons or the Lords, but the latter, at least, is easily fixed. David Cameron is being hastily draped in off-the-rack ermine and anointed baron of somewhere or other in order to lend proceedings some veneer of legitimacy. And though it is unusual, certainly in recent decades, for lords to hold any of what the British call the great officers of state, Prime Minister, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer, it is not historically unheard of. The most recent Foreign Secretary, who was also a peer, was Lord Carrington, who resigned in 1982 for failing to notice that Argentina was about to invade the Falkland Islands, an epochal balls-up that gives Cameron a daunting standard to match in his new role. Form suggests he does have it in him. The most recent Prime Minister to actually lead the country from the Lords, fact fans, was Lord Salisbury, who had three whacks at the job between 1885 and 1902. There is an extremely pedantic case to be made for Alec Douglas Hume, who was technically a Lord and Prime Minister for four days after being asked to replace an ill Harold Macmillan in 1963, but Hume renounced his hereditary peerage and a few weeks later won election to the Commons in a convenient by-election. We at the Foreign Desk Explainer look forward to hearing from listeners who have used this knowledge to start riots at their local pub quiz. We turn now to Sunak's motivations for enacting this curious manoeuvre. One reason does not flatter the current Parliamentary Conservative Party, which is that Rishi Sunak surveyed his 349 Commons colleagues and decided that not one of them could be trusted to wander the world unsupervised, at which it is worth remembering how low this bar is, that in recent years the Tory party has allowed both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss to go to summits as Foreign Secretary and help make decisions about stuff. We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. 
This, in fairness to Sunak, is an inherent weakness of the Westminster parliamentary system. By the time any party has been in power 13 years, they tend to be running low on MPs who are not too old, too mad, too silly, too drunk, too disgraced, too compromised or too dead to be considered for high office. Another, and this one is fun for appreciators of bleak irony, in that just as an attempt to marginalise the Conservative Party's seething weirdo fringe forced Cameron out, something broadly similar has brought him back in. Rishi Sunak will have to face a general election sometime between now and late January 2025. Current polling portends an apocalypse, and Sunak seems to have calculated that his best faint hope is restricting the Tories' furniture chewers to gnawing on the backbenches and hoping that a familiar face will serve as a reassurance, rather than a reminder of who is chiefly responsible for the last seven years of utter nonsense to which the country has been needlessly subjected. And there is also, it should be conceded, the possibility that this might not be a completely terrible idea. Cameron is well-known, well-connected, not dogmatically hostile to Europe, has some grasp of how the world works. As for Cameron himself, the appeal is easier to diagnose. Even a likely short stint as Foreign Secretary offers some opportunity for redemption. A chance to be remembered, maybe not entirely, as the most egregious, complacent bungler who ever inhabited 10 Downing Street. Thank you very much. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Right. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We have a highlight from our food show, The Menu, where we head now to a home kitchen where Ukrainian journalist Roxoliana Lasica teaches how to make borscht, her nation's beloved dish. The vibrant beetroot soup accompanies Ukrainians throughout their lives from large events such as weddings to ordinary weekday lunches, and each cook adds their own twist. Monaco's Julia Lasica sat down with her mother, to find out how to make her version of this cherished traditional dish. So we are making today a Ukrainian dish called borscht. It's a staple dish, a very popular dish in Ukrainian cuisine. And it's, it's a beetroot soup, which can be made in different ways. It can be as like everyday meal, a light lunch meal, or it could be a ritual meal, which will would be served in any of, any of Ukrainian families. And it could be also one of the main courses of Ukrainian Christmas Eve celebration feast. Or it could be even served as a wedding dish. In different regions, you can have different versions of this dish. It could be cooked with chicken broth, or it could be cooked with beef bones broth could be even cooked with fish for example in Kharkiv region in eastern Ukrainian city main eastern Ukrainian city you can add beer to the borscht dish if, for example Ukrainian national poet Taras Shevchenko loved in 19th century to be made with the fish broth Different regions like Zakarpatia, for example, in the far west of the country, people used to prepare it with white beetroot. Or in Poltava, it was made with goose broth. So now I'm going to put on the hob my favorite black Colombian 
pot, which is my favorite to cook borscht in. I will fill it one third with water. I'll put my previously from from the night before pre-soaked beans. Could be any beans of your choice. Could be cannellini, could be broad beans, whatever uh, you prefer. And I'll put it with a very small whole onion and small carrot, also whole. And that is going to be our main base broth in which we are going to add whatever we want, whatever we prepare. We are going to prepare sofrito, another base with chopped onions, sautéed, and then once it's getting softer, you add chopped or I like grated carrots. Incorporate everything, let it get together, the taste to penetrate, and then you add beetroots. Also, could be chopped or could be grated. I prefer it grated. Along with this, you add chopped garlic, bay leaf, and let it saute for about 10 minutes altogether before adding tomatoes, chopped tomatoes, and another 10 minutes to incorporate and all the taste to get through. And that is going to make a wonderful, delicious base, which you will add then when you are ready and when you main pot with with the broth is ready. I like a lot of beetroots in my Porsche. I like it to be very intense, beautifully red color. Um, Just we should remember if we add a lot of beets, then we should balance the taste of sweetness with acidity so then you will have to add more tomatoes or in olden times people used to add fermented juice made again out of beetroot the borscht can be a a very very different texture, density, well, for example, Poles, they like their borscht being completely like juice, or my husband uh, always recalls wine when he drinks borscht. It, it's served in cups. Um, it also can be a very important part of uh, ritual meal, like, for example, Christmas Eve meal. But it's it's very aromatic, but you don't add many vegetables, just beet beets boiled for a very long time with spices and it makes a really lovely aromatic broth and but you just drink it as juice in some parts of russia borscht was also adopted by russians uh, from the 17th century but it was like a luxurious meal at, back at that time because it was brought to russian court by one of, one of favorites of uh, tsarina Elizaveta Petrovna, daughter, one of the, the, the daughter and the heir of Piotr the First. So she really loved borscht, and well, she hired cooks from Ukraine who used to make borscht for her, and that's how it became popular in Russia as well. I remember me coming to visit my family in Bucha during holidays. 
And I remember every time I come back to Ukraine, it, the borscht tastes completely differently than here making it in England. And it's just amazing. It's completely different than mine. It's not as dense, not as thick. It has got less vegetables, more broth, but it's just this in the amazing taste, which you get like the taste of home, which you can get and achieve however much you try here in England. And on the Entrepreneurs this week, we have some seasonal shopping tips from the co-founder of Knightsbridge Rocks, Brenda Tui, who is a connoisseur of fine jewelry with a knack for finding the right piece for the right occasion. My neighbor and very good friend Katie Kelly and I were great lovers of jewelry. And about 13 years ago, we came up with this brilliant idea that as we love jewelry so much, we'd start buying it and then maybe selling it. So that's how we started. So, you know, we buy things, we wear them a little bit, and then hopefully we sell them. And, and that strikes me as really interesting, Brenda, because I know you're being sort of playful about that. Mm. But the point is, like so many things, if we talk about some of these other categories, like buying art or whatever, yeah. it has to be a passion play, correct? I agree. One can obviously make a successful business out of it, but it's got to be a passion first and foremost. It is an absolute passion. And often Katie has to remind me that it is also <laughs> a business, <laughs> that I can't just have everything. And tell me where that where did that love that fascination begin? Is that something you've had your whole your whole life? And is it like old classic pieces, contemporary pieces, what, or just a bit of everything? Well, we do have a bit of everything, but we sort of start buying things really from about the mid fifties, nineteen fifties onwards. And right now, pieces from the sixties and seventies are very, very popular too. Big yellow gold chunky pieces, you know, <laughs> that you see coming a mile off. They're um, fantastic. And Brenda, how how do you build up your, your knowledge base or is it all gut instincts? Obviously you you're talking about the trends in the marketplace, so you must have a weather eye. I know you have lots of contacts in that world as well. How do you ensure that you're sufficiently on top of those trends and, and dynamics? I mean I'm not so sure how much we stick to the trends. I think we really stick to what we like. And so Katie's aesthetic could be completely different than mine. And often we're surprised, you know. Also we have, you know, different price ranges. We have 500 and under. We have 5,000 and over. It depends on what you're doing. We've recently started to use recycled gold and we've repurposed gemstones that we have pulled out of other items of jewelry, rings and things, and created a couple of new ranges too. So we've got the repurposed gemstones and we've popped them into some recycled gold and then got an, an Italian enameler to um, create something. They, they look like little bits of candy, you know, and pink enamel or bright yellow or turquoise. So we're becoming more confident now. We're not just buying pieces. We're also creating pieces. Very exciting journey. And you obviously advise clients. I'm sure people come to you with quite specific requests. When people ask those, probably, I imagine, slightly annoying questions, what should I look for? Does this matter? We were actually talking just before about these old inherited pieces and people think they have a great value. Often they have a much greater value yeah. because of their origin story. Yes. But are there easier things for lay listeners to look out for when it comes to particular signposts of, of quality or craft or things that you think have a, a wider appeal? What kinds of things should people be looking for, Brenda? Ultimately, they should be... I think, looking for something that they really love. And I would say that wearability is really important. Mm. I'm interested in pieces that I can wear pretty much every day. I mean, it's nice to have something special for a special occasion. But actually, a lot of times, 
pieces like that just stay in people's drawers and aren't worn. And ultimately, I think only 10% of all jewelry that is purchased or given or inherited ever goes back into the secondary market. So there's a lot of jewelry probably hidden in people's drawers. So I would say, first of all, buy something that you like, something that you can wear every day. And then if it's, especially if it's something you're going to invest a lot of money in, I mean, a pair of diamond ear studs, they're timeless, they're classic, you can wear them to the supermarket, you can wear them out to dinner, you can wear them all day, you can probably sleep in them, they're comfortable. I sometimes do, Brenda, <laughs> just those. I joke, I joke, of course. Let's talk a little bit about not just the the special occasion piece, but the singular occasion piece. It's such a focus in fine jewellery, of course, looking at engagement rings, that kind yes. of thing. Should people retain the same criteria or do you have to acknowledge that it's a bit of a different set of parameters you're operating with them? I, I think you have to maintain the same criteria. I do. You know, this is a ring you're going to wear every single day. I think it's important that it's not too high. I mean, the stone can be as large as you like. <laughs> You know, or as little. I mean, you can just go for a band speckled with diamonds, but I'd be more in the market for something at least two carats. Take uh, note, listeners. <laughs> These are Brenda's very specific requirements. But it's if you buy something from the secondary market, obviously you're not paying for the labor, for the manufacturer. You're probably not paying for the marketing either, so you're probably going to get a better deal on it. You have to look at the diamond, the quality of diamond. You have to look at your budget. You know, there's a lot, lot of things to take into account. I would suggest that maybe, that maybe for all kinds of reasons, including sustainability, that you look at the secondary market. And, and but, maybe in particular Knightsbridge Rock. Well, I was going to say, and ask somebody who knows, because I think this is one of those interesting things. There are lots of people who say, look, I'm actually quite an enthusiast, but I still find it a bit a bit of a tricky place to, to, to navigate. Some of the big auction houses, I'm a bit intimidated by them. Who can you trust? You know, Brenda sounds very convincing, but who knows what she's getting up to. Do you think it's right that people approach, because there are big investments sometimes at play, that they approach with a degree of trepidation, but would you say that it's not a market to be afraid of? Just get stuck in, get researching, find out more? I think that's a very, very good idea that you know, that you arrive forearmed with some information and also that you have an idea of what you want it's better. I mean, there's so many images of rings everywhere. And I think when you're looking at an engagement ring, I wouldn't be concerned with trends. I would be thinking to keep it quite simple and strong because it's something, again, that you don't want to be fashionable. It's something you're going to wear every day, hopefully for the rest of your life. Hopefully. Yes. Um, I was jotting down some notes then, Brenda, <laughs> but nobody get any ideas, whoever you are listening. Quick shopper's guide. So... Listener out there, they love your approach, Brenda. If they know you, they'll love your style. And they'll say, look, I've got a bit of bunts to play with here. I'm going to come and chat to Brenda. Let's say in the under 5,000 bracket, what would you point us towards? One of your own signature pieces? Something else that you've got on the roster at the minute? Under five, first of all, what would you, what I would think, you advise I think me to under 5,000. I think I would always head to a dealer who deals in jewellery from the secondary market because you're just going to get more for your money, whether it's under 5,000 or under 500. Now, if you're looking for something that isn't going to have to last for a lifetime. There are lots of wonderful high street shops that you could look into where they might have gold plated or gilt jewelry in fantastic designs that are for right now that can update your look. But I think if you're investing a lot of money, 
you should really look for something that has a timeless and simplicity. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, and on this week's Urbanist, it was all about urbanism in the UAE. And this time we'll hop on a golf buggy to get a tour of Expo City Dubai and discover how the purpose-built site was planned from the ground up and how it is becoming a vibrant business and residential hub. So that's the China Pavilion. You can't miss it, that big round red thing. Mm -hmm. So that's becoming a... It is actually a Chinese cultural center. So China does a lot of activities here. The Chinese New Year, there were 27,000 Chinese, I think. I'm getting that number right here. So they do a lot of things and they use their space. This is the Emirates building. They're going to be using this as part of their operations. That's the Saudi Arabia Pavilion, which is a um, fully sustainable lead, platinum, solar paneled. They're using this for COP. So all the Saudi cultural activity, and this is going to be the green zone. So where we are now is going to be the green zone. And then the blue zone is just adjacent, which is the first time a COP has had a blue and a green zone next to each other. And the smaller countries that are not typically at the heart of an expo, they were all inside these buildings. So these were the big boulevards. And then all of these countries, the lower floor, the ground floor was all exhibition. So they were very central. This is the UAE pavilion. It's designed by Santiago Calatrava, the Spanish Mm -hmm. designer. So it's on hydraulic system and the the falcon wings open and there are solar panels. So it's very beautiful when it's all working. And that's going to be a a center for climate during COP and that UAE's main exhibition during COP. Have you heard of our Wazel Plasma, our 360-degree projection? At nighttime, it's absolutely spectacular. The whole thing comes to life. So these are, I think, 260 projectors, and they project onto this mesh panel, and they tell stories, and we have concerts, and... We had Coldplay here, we had so many different concerts, it was crazy. So it's just a great venue. Do residents of you know, Dubai engage a lot with the activities that happen here? Yeah, they do. Expo? You know, so we have a couple of sort of flagship, because we're only about a, a year old really as a city when you think about it. And so one of the big festivals we have every year is the Winter Festival. So for Christmas, the entire place turns into this winter wonderland. We've got the Ramadan Festival that happens for the whole month of Ramadan. There's a lot of activity here. That changes month to month. So there's a lot of sort of opportunities to come back. And then we've still got all, our, all of our exhibitions. Al-Kabulan is our Africa food hall, which is reopening. That's a surreal waterfall. I will show it to you. With a name like that, I need to see it. It, is, yes, it, <laughs> amazing. it really is. It really is a beautiful experience. So all of these were little shops and kiosks. We can get down. It's water and fire. So in the center, we're removing the fire component. There's just a feature for the expo. But this will come out, but the water feature becomes a venue. So during Ramadan, we have long tables where people can book their iftars, and it's just a really beautiful environment to be in. And during COP, people are going to use this as a venue. And so it becomes a place to experience, but also a place to host 
I think there was a fashion show here once this year as well. Yeah, so there's a lot that you can do in a place like this. You're about to experience this wave, but what actually happens is the water, it doesn't go further than a certain point, but it feels like you're in this big mad rush of water. It trickles down the pebbles. And it, yeah. I mean, I wonder how, because um, obviously it's quite a vast area, how has it been to try to envision it transitioning from a place you know, that was built for the expo to yeah. a proper city. Yeah. The trick for that was that we always planned it to be a city before it's a world expo. So it was built as a city to house a world expo for six months. So we never designed it with a world expo in mind. It wasn't designed to house, you know, 192 countries. We built a city before we built the vision for the expo. It was actually Legacy was the first department that we set up at expo when we won the bid. So back in 2014, so we won the expo, the right to host the expo, which is the genesis of this whole thing. But we won the right to host it in November 2013, and then the first department to be set up was a legacy department. Because how does this all fit into the wider plan, was the question that we asked ourselves. And of course, now you're setting up to host COP28, and of course, that puts on uh, pause a lot of the legacy plans in terms of tenants moving in and all of that but how has it been you know on a day-to-day in terms of activities and people coming here you were talking earlier about you know residents being engaged with the activities that happen at Expo City I'm just a bit curious about that whole process because obviously you're just setting up to host another big event we're four square kilometers right I mean this is a city twice the size of Monaco I actually don't think that anything has been put on hold The last year has been a necessary preparatory year to take a place that actually did host 24 million visitors and turn it into a place that can accommodate. So the example that I gave you and I'll show you about building the bridges and linking the buildings together so that they're ready to accommodate tenants takes time. These plots of land that I'm pointing out are going to be where the the apartments are going to be built. I'll show you, actually, I'm going to take you to the sales center so you get a visual of how the apartments and what the site's going to look like. But it takes that long to prepare the city for that kind of activity. Meanwhile, bringing tenants in, and we already have, I think, over 3,000 tenants living here already, or working here already, whilst accommodating visitors, whilst being in the heat and figuring out mobility solutions. So doing all of that takes time. So I don't actually think that it's reasonable for a place to go from being a, a place that has an, an event overnight to being ready to being able to accommodate all of this. It's a process. It takes time. But I don't think it hasn't been... Legacy has not been put on hold. Legacy is always a work in progress. And actually, I think we've done quite well so far in terms of our legacy planning and delivering on it. So all of these buildings that you see... You see the link bridge right there? That bridge didn't exist in event time, but putting those bridges up in the first floor and the second floor in accommodates the future tenants. So it's almost like a living legacy because yeah, by... It's, it's by tra- Exactly, because by transitioning from being the host of an event to a city, you then are met with these real-life challenges and solutions that your te- any city te- does. Yeah, that tenants might ask for. Yeah, as any city does, but then accommodating for an ongoing city that's living and breathing and it has people and it has you know this is a hotel that's regularly fully booked people come and stay here and they come and stay for the weekend and they walk around and they see our shows in the evening and they go to the events that we put on and one of the things I do is the thought leadership piece of work 
a program and event. So, you know, we have a book club. We hosted a big event last week. These speaker series of people who contribute to conversations around sustainability and around cities. But then we're also planning a massive event for more than 500 people next January for sustainable cities in action. So mayors, decision makers, people who are changing the way cities live and how people interact with them. We're hosting a very big event that we want to be an anchor event every single year for Expo City Dubai to draw people who build, people who care about where we live and how we live into the city. So there is all sorts of things going on and all sorts of things being planned at every level. Of course, mobility is a big factor here. I mean, you are tapped into the metro system. You have kept most of the area pedestrianized, but with shading, be it natural or by design, so that, so that it can be, yeah, so that it can be, people can move around on foot. How important has it been that mobility conversation when thinking about and talking about the legacy and the future of Expo City? So you can't get rid of cars, right? There's a massive parking underground because we're connected as the city of Dubai by metro, but not everybody. I drive to work, so I need a place to put the car. So we're not doing away with the fact that we live in an ecosystem that has a number of different mobility solutions. But one of the things that we're looking at in our urban lab conversation is around mobility solutions because that's obviously, this is a massive city. How do you get around and how do you innovate around getting around just in buggies? So right now we do it in buggies. But is that the only option that we have? Is that the only solution that we have that we can test and that we can innovate for? That's the kind of nature of the conversation that we're having around mobility. This is going to be one of the apartment buildings. So we've already broken ground and here you're going to see an apartment building in 2025 show you the master plan and all of those apartment buildings are already sold out the ones that have been released are all sold and it's really interesting to see the mix of nationalities who have purchased it's very international i will show you what it looks like and in our show the globalist this week in britain the national cyber security center has released its annual review of security issues and warned that the next elections in the uk which must be held by january 2025 may be compromised by bad actors such as russia to tell us more here is david bodanis the first thing these threats can do is take our current capabilities and multiply them. So already, as we know in something like the Brexit campaign in America, in Britain, uh, people would look closely at what different types of uh, British voters like and work out, here's a message that applies really well to them, whether it is accurate or not. Now, this skill will be terrifically multiplied by AI. I think when Dominic Cummings was involved with the Brexit campaign, I think he divided Britain into about 300 or 400 different groups. Um, there could be uh, uh, middle-aged men in the suburbs. There could be uh, young uh, women in, in central London, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, with AI, you can have a huge number. You can almost make it as granular as the whole country. Press a button and have exactly the right messages, which might be false, but will be very uh, misleading to each and every individual. So I'm trying to figure out how this would work. It would then be, for instance, a deep fake video targeted exactly to the people that need to hear that and pushed onto their feed by an algorithm. Uh, yes, exactly. And uh, the deep fake might actually not be a deep fake. It, c- it could be um, it could uh, uh, a lot of things that people look at on YouTube or social media doesn't have a source. So you'll just see this thing, a, a pleasant person speaking. They might be computer generated. They might not. Uh, probably they will be. But it'll look exactly like a, an, a, a 
person. And it might even be a newsletter from a Labour or Tory uh, central office. Mm. So then, what are the policy uh, solutions to this and also the challenges to those solutions? It's difficult. Uh, already, uh, without making this a party political broadcast, many parties already do things that are not quite true. Uh, in America, what are called push polls are very uh, uh, popular. Uh, George W. Bush used them in his election years ago. What it is is somebody uh, or a, 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 a computerized voice phones somebody and pretends to be asking a polling question for a polling organization. But the questions are very misleading and designed to incite uh, anger or resentment. How does that work? Uh, so, for example, they might find somebody who uh, they think is in a category that might be slightly against immigrants, and they'll ask a question, a very loaded question. We have seven questions for you. What do you think about the 18 cases of, of violence by immigrants in your neighborhood recently, et cetera, et cetera? It might not be true, but it thinks, wow, it comes from an abstract authority. Perhaps the most dangerous thing from AI is the unexpected. So I talked about things that take our current capacities and multiply them. Uh, uh, so some of the slogans during Brexit were very popular in Britain, and they, they reached the parts that others don't. What if some of these AIs come up with good feedback and come up with slogans that nobody had thought of that are extremely potent? Britain uh, still relies on a paper voting system. Is it as much at risk as countries that use a digital system? And, and, and what do you think that means in real terms for the next election here? Uh, the, the paper system is really important. Uh, there are flaws with paper systems, but they tend to be limited. For example, suppose there's a big lorry with um, uh, 20 million banknotes in the back, uh, uh, five pound, uh, uh, 10 pound notes or whatever, and you and your friends have to count them accurately. It's unlikely you come, would come up to the exact uh, same result. You're going to make mistakes that I count this bundle or not, but your errors are going to be bounded. That's what paper balloting is like. There's mistakes, but we know they're within a, a teeny, teeny amount. Uh, with a, a computer voting, it might be uh, 100% accurate, but if it goes wrong, it can seriously go wrong. And so the worry is that that actual counting system could be tampered with. Uh, sure, because all it takes is, is one hacker. And most of the uh, companies behind this keep their, uh, their software um, uh, uh, dark. Uh, they don't explain how it works. Mm. Uh, Russia obviously has a track record on this, but which other countries have been highlighted as potential meddlers? Ah, so this is the problem. It's, it's one of those things that's extremely deniable. Uh, small countries, uh, consider something like North Korea. Uh, there's no chance they could fight a NATO army uh, directly. It just can't work. But if they have one kid who's exceptionally brilliant at hacking... So long as he's better than the top uh, person or people uh, at uh, the National Security Agency or GCHQ, then they have a chance. So any bad actor can do it. And the bad actors might be uh, uh, nations we don't like. Uh, they could be pol political figures we don't like who think they're going to get too small a vote. They could be large corporate interests. They could be some bored teenage boy or girl um, in a suburb of Manchester. I mean, so it's not necessarily always done for political gain. Correct. And sometimes people will do this for fun, as in bits of trolling. There are ways to uh, control this, but they're really hard. Uh, and the people involved in controlling it have to uh, incorporate the desires of big tech. We've seen how well big tech is malleable when it comes to controlling social media, which means not very malleable. So this obviously needs concerted international action at the policy level. Yes. Uh, and is that happening? 
to the best of my knowledge, the response is, again, uh, as uh, poor as the response to uh, social media's lies and exaggerations. It's really hard to do when on the one side are, uh, sorry, there are several uh, difficulties. One is a lot of uh, bad groups uh, wish to do this. And to them, they're not often bad groups. Think of our propaganda, uh, or uh, we don't call it propaganda, our pushing of, of a fair and honest line um, in, in uh, what we consider countries that are uh, dictatorships or totalitarian. When we do it, it's right. So many people on our side feel justified in the way that many people on the other sides also feel justified. Uh, firms pushing certain lines. It's a, it's a fine line between legitimate and, and useful uh, corporate uh, information spread versus these malicious lies. When does it shift over? And how can we tell? Uh, at the moment, we are uh, totally dependent on, uh, on our government masters to, uh, to do the right thing and put in blocks before this happens. So how much education is there around private individuals being told to check and how to check, how you verify that anything you're being told is actually from a from a reliable source? Uh, uh, So excellent schools and sensible parents uh, do push that. And there's little things you can do to practice how unlikely uh, how uh, if something is uh, linked to what are the handful of utterly reputable sources. it's it's difficult. I'm not aware of any overall program in the UK that's well constructed and incorporates feedback to see what works or doesn't work. If a middle-aged teacher says to a teenage uh, uh, classroom, uh, "Be careful, you can't trust what's on the net," they're going to say, "Yeah, yeah," and ignore that. Mm. So this this report then from the National Cyber Security Centre, should we be very worried about this? Oh, totally. Uh, for me, this is the sort of thing that can break down democracy because if people find it doesn't work, they'll stop. Uh, We think that democracy is eternal because when I grew up and many of our listeners grew up, it was kind of a given thing and a kind of a growing thing and associated with prosperous countries. We know historically there was just a little blip of a few generations. You're listening to The Curator, a highlight of my show, The Stack, now. I had the pleasure to meet in studio Roland Allen. He's the author of The Notebook, A History of Thinking on Paper. The book started because of a curiosity about notebooks and in turn that was because notebooks had come to play quite an important part I guess in my life as they do in lots of people's lives. I started keeping a diary when I was about 28 and that was inspired by my finding my grandfather's old diaries and he had died many years before and I didn't know him really but then learning about his very interesting life before the war and things like that made me quite curious about what it would be like to keep my own diary. And then I just started filling notebooks with more and more and more and more stuff. Started writing down anything, really, not just what happened to me. And I guess then after a while I started noticing other people's. There are a lot of people like that, as you know. I've seen your notebooks, which are remarkably lively. And therefore I just became curious about this thing. Everyone seemed to have them and no one seemed to know anything about them, if you like. And it's interesting that, of course, people say we are in a digital world. I mean, a lot of people have their notes on iPhone. But, I mean, there is still, of course, there is a market for the notebook. I don't think it's dying out, right? Why is that, do you think? Well, lots and lots of answers. I guess if you're doing a straight comparison with, we talk about making notes on our phone and using our phone calendars, things like that. There is definitely a kind of note which is much better made on paper. And they know this now. They've done a lot of research. Actually, interestingly, in Japan, where obviously they're very tech-savvy and they heavy tech users, but also they know a lot about stationery, 
which I think we'll talk about later. So they've looked at how effective note-taking is when you do it on a screen as opposed to when you do it on physical paper. And it's very clear that you remember things better if you write them down on paper, you process them better if you're analysing them in some way, and therefore you could sort of imply from that it's more creative. Obviously there are times when you're keeping something very simple which you don't need to analyse particularly, like a phone number or address or something. But any time it's getting more complicated, more sophisticated, you're much better off putting it on paper. And that seems to be to do with a couple of things, including the act of handwriting, which is a motor act and a sensory act and therefore involves the brain more than just moving your thumbs. And there's also something to do with our mental maps of ideas. So we're used to the idea of a mental map of places, whether it's just in your home, you know, where you put things in the kitchen or the city you live in. But also, when you write an idea down on paper in a notebook, you also give it a place, and it is then located in that notebook. And when you flick from page to page, you're looking for something and you already have an idea where it is. There is a school of thought that if you write something on the screen of an iPad and then flip the screen, turn the page if you like, it's just vanished into the iPad as far as your brain is concerned, and your mental map can't then relocate it as easily as you can when you've written it on paper. So, yes, there are lots of reasons why I think that paper is definitely here to stay. As I say, particularly, I think if you're doing anything creative with ideas, with numbers, with words, it's a really important step to go through. I think so as well. And fascinating looking at the history of it, because I've got to be honest, Roland, before, you know, reading your book, I had no idea who was the first person to use it. And I think we can kind of give it to the Italians in a way, right? Yeah, it certainly... The, yes and no. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely in the Arabic or Muslim Islamic world, they were using notebooks earlier than they were in Europe. The problem we have is that very, very few of them have survived. So we don't really know how. In Europe, on the other hand, lots of them have survived. You can date it very precisely. So it's the second half of the 13th century They start using them in Italy and they start making paper in Italy, which is the first successful paper manufacturer in Christian Europe in about the year 1270 uh, in Fabriano in Italy, where they still make paper. And we can date it quite precisely and we can say exactly what they were using notebooks for then. So I guess it's suitably for Monocle. It's all tied up with business and travel and, and leisure. When did they become kind of let's say, widely available to people? Because I presume in 1300, I mean, yeah. probably just a certain elite might have that, right? Yeah, it was... Um, that's, a really, that's a really interesting question, actually. Mm. It depends much more on your geography than your class. Mm. If you lived in Florence, then it was easy. Everyone had access to paper and notebooks, and it wasn't particularly expensive. It was made down the road... And it was really, really widely used. And if you look at Florence back in, say, the 1300s, it's incredibly literate. Nearly everyone, men and women, could read or write up to a point. And definitely a lot of people were keeping notebooks at home. You see this from people's wills. Even people who are shoemakers will leave two or three books, and there won't be printed books, will leave two or three books behind them when they die. If you're lucky enough to be in Florence or in one of the Tuscan towns or some other Italian cities, 
it's a very democratic thing, like nearly everyone will have one. If you go further afield, it changes completely. We know, for instance, 100 years later when Chaucer was writing about England, very, very few paper notebooks in England at that time because he had to explain to people what a paper notebook was like, what it felt like, which he does in a couple of his poems. So he's evidently talking about something which they're not familiar with. And we know we have very few manuscripts on paper from that period from England. So people were still writing on parchment, and parchment at that point or always is really expensive as a material, not very practical. It's quite hard to use parchment and very difficult to make. And finally, for Monocon Design Extra, we talk about the Atlas of Car Design, the world's most iconic cars. And we have Jason Barlow discussing his survey of iconic car designs from across the globe. I believe that the car was perhaps the defining invention of the 20th century. Currently, the industry is going through the single biggest and most important transition since the car was invented in 1886 by Carl Benz. I think he's credited with the very first car. This is a fascinating, important, existential moment for the entire industry as everybody pivots towards electrification and perhaps hydrogen as well. So it's, it's a good time to take stock. I also believe that the automobile is as important a shaper of cities as buildings. They're mobile pieces of, of architecture in a way. Everybody knows the contribution that North America's made, Europe, Italy, the UK, France. But I think perhaps some of the, the gems in this book are, like, for example, I did not know that Egypt had, had ever attempted to get a domestic car industry off the ground, but it did. It didn't work, but they still tried. Uh, Central and South America have yielded some fascinating cars and stories. One of the other things that I was obsessed with this book was ensuring that it would be a piece of visual entertainment as well. The archive imagery in here, I think, is sensational. It's as much a, a story of contemporary advertising, sociocultural mores, trends, geopolitical trends. It isn't just a book about automotive design. It's the entire world reflected through the prism of automotive design. The most significant thing we're going to see over the next 10 years is, is the inroads that the Chinese car industry makes. 15 years ago, they were shocking plagiarists, and, and all they did was do knockoffs of successful European designs. I remember visiting Shanghai in 2005. It was comical what they were trying to get away with, and this is a point in time when European OEMs were in joint ventures with Chinese companies just because of the, the scale of the country. Well, it's not comical anymore. The progress that the country has made is uh, phenomenal. And they worked out pretty quickly that they weren't going to be able to catch up in terms of internal combustion engines, but they had all the IP and cleverness they needed in, in regard to electrified cars. We're going to see a lot of, of impressive Chinese EVs over the next 10 years. Now, anyway, the reason why I brought that up is because there is a section in the book on the roots of the Chinese car industry, and it's pretty fascinating. I guess that's the point, but it kind of allows you to join the dots in a way that, that perhaps you wouldn't, unless you applied this sort of Atlas approach. From the mid-50s to the mid-1970s, I think Italy was responsible for the firing of the imagination, the product design. I genuinely believe in the latter half of the 20th century that the creative 
lifeblood that flowed through all the Renaissance masters, the, the sculptors, the artists, the architects. I passionately believe that a lot of that expression found its way through into car design. The 1966 Lamborghini Muro. This is a car that most people would cite as perhaps the most beautiful car ever made. It's also kind of the first supercar. It was mid-engined, which was an unusual thing to do in that period. It also has a wonderful backstory because the authorship of it is contested. It was probably started by Giorgetto Giugiaro, and then it was completed by Marcello Gandini. Even now, you have to be really careful how you talk about that because these two titans of car design, they're both still alive. They're both still feisty, fantastic characters. This is one of the great contributions to culture, the Lamborghini Miura. They both have a claim to it, um, and they'll, uh, you just have to be careful about It's like kind of going, well, who painted that? Maestros of Italian car design, Giorgetto Giugiaro, Marcello Gandini, just to name two, Bertone, Ghia, other companies set up on his own in 1968 uh, as a tile design, was friendly with a lot of the kingpins of German car industry and Japanese as well. His work is everywhere. He also designed the DeLorean. These are people who have helped shape our entire culture. They're not just car designers. And Giorgetto is also a problem solver. So he did the original Volkswagen Golf, which was a hugely significant car. He did the original Fiat Panda, which was done under extraordinary cost restraints, which was a pressure that he appreciate it because imagine having to design a car that everybody can afford that's where the real genius is a lot of this book is a story of visionaries as well not just car designers but from Carl Benz and Daimler in the early days uh, Henry Ford obviously the first to figure out how to mass produce Alfred Sloan who was the boss of GM in the 1920s who was his widely credited with coming up with a kind of hierarchy of brands and then Switchira Honda in the 1950s who basically was focused on the motorcycle really that was the thing that mobilised Japan but then got into cars won the Isle of Man TT in his bike racers in the late 50s entered Formula One in 1964, won their first Formula One race in 1965. Just astonishing pace that they moved at. And the acceleration that happened in the 70s, I'm phenomenal. These are very challenging times. The younger generation, they're rejecting the car completely. There are a lot of big trends, you know, urbanization. I think when we had COVID, people were suddenly going, oh, I don't want to live in the city anymore. I want to get back in the country. But everybody wants to live in a big city younger generation are going, why, why on earth would I want to own a car? So maybe you can do a zip car or rent one at the weekend or whatever. The car industry, that's another thing that they're really worried about. Is the younger generation even remotely interested? Because they're expensive. EVs are expensive. Where do you park? Insurance, all that stuff. There are lots of barriers to it. To me, the car, I, I, I grew up loving the way they looked. I love what they represented. There's a freedom there. We absolutely have to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, there's no question. The answer might come in the form of synthetic fuels. For me, it's a mixture of synthetic fuels, electrification, I think, if for your daily use. But I do still believe there's, there's room for internal combustion, and I, and I hope that, that people will still be able to enjoy those cars. Not least some of the great classic cars, historic cars that are the heart and soul of the Atlas of Car Design. I hope there's room for all of it, really. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. <laughs>